So I'm all for leverage. I'm just saying the cash flow from assisted living facilities that are run properly, when you have scaling, when you have the things that you need, because again, there's some challenges. When you get those things, um, it sometimes can make sense to do those things on leverage. And that's not true of very many other real estate subclasses. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Today, our guest is Low Hornbuckle. He is a residential assisted living investor. Today, we're going to talk about how you and others can do well while doing good by ethically investing in memory care residential assisted living facilities. In this discussion, we get a lot into the impact that a good residential assisted living operator can have on individuals, their residents, and their families and on society at large. We get into the future of residential assisted living and how necessary it is going to continue to be, how much it's going to grow over the next decade to two decades as the baby boomer generation gets older and starts to use those services even more. This is a great discussion if you, again, want to learn about how you can do well with your investments while doing good for society and having a positive impact on those around you. Without further ado, here's Lo. Lo, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Taylor. Happy to talk with you. We've been Facebook friends for a while, and I've been you know, watching what you do and what you post online, and I was you know, looking forward to talking with you. So- you know, do we want to start with capital with a cause? Do we want to start with your assisted living investments? Where is your priority right now? Yeah, I mean, I, they're really uh, interchangeable for me. I mean, I think, um, you know, some people may have more interest in the assisted living piece. Um, capital for a cause or capital with a cause, excuse me, is something that um, I think is just a natural pairing with uh, raising capital for a business that helps people uh, improve their health outcomes, improve their quality of life. Um, so we can definitely start with the assisted living piece. And I know you've you know, had uh, others on the show talk about assisted living. So feel free to ask me oddball or more different questions so that you can kind of get a little bit different uh, take on the topic. Yeah. So, I mean, we've talked about on the show, we had uh, Gene Guarino on to talk about the residential assisted living business model, kind of at a high level. That was one of the early episodes. And, you know, you're somebody who's out there doing it. So can you tell us more about the niche in residential assisted living that you invest in? Because even though it's a, it's a fairly specific investment, it has residential assisted living has some pretty uh, distinct silos or business paths, uh, business types within it. So what are you doing? In residential yeah. So assisted I think the first living? thing is, is that, um, you know, I always kind of tell everybody, I, I don't think residential assisted living is a real estate business for most people. It can be, um, you know, if you uh, buy a facility and then you lease it to an operator, um, then essentially you're in the real estate side of the business. But I think substantially number of the profits that come from assisted living, really, it's a service business that has a real estate component, if that makes any sense. So um, the vast majority of the success or failure of the business is going to come from the operational side, um, not necessarily from, from the real estate piece. And so, um, you know, it's it's a it's a very rewarding business. Um, you can help a lot of people. It's also a difficult business. I mean, you're you're taking care of people 24 hours a day. Um, you know, you've got staff. Um, uh, healthcare workers are not the easiest to find in the world right now, um, especially in America. We have a shortage of healthcare workers. And so, um, 
you're kind of at, you're kind of at this point where you know there's some challenges to the business. Very rewarding. Um, you definitely have moments where you're very very happy that um, you got into the business because all the people you can help. Um, there's also some periods of time where it can be stressful, and um, you know being in being in a healthcare related business, um, you know that's open 24 hours definitely has its um, has its challenges. And so you know I'm always mindful to to talk to people about that if they're thinking about getting into the space. The best way to be involved, or one of the best ways to be involved, in my opinion, is to uh, you can invest in other people that are doing all the hard work for you. Um, so there's obviously opportunities to pick someone to, uh, who's raising capital for their projects, and then you can give them <clears throat> give them capital and let them deal with the uh, 3M phone calls and and the uh, no call no shows from staff. Let that be their problem. Oh man! All right. So yeah, I, I like the sound of that because you know I, I like investing in apartments and maybe things that are, I don't know, less, um, I don't know, it's still, still important, but it's another level when you're taking care of grandma and grandpa. That is clearly at its own, you know, in terms I've of been in the multifamily business before. Um, so there's definitely an operational level, uh, in, in multifamily, you know, a good property management company or a good management team is going to, can improve properties that are the lot struggling. Um, but, if we're going to say that an apartment is 80% location, pricing strategy, and uh, you know building, and 20% operations, assisted living is probably the reverse. So maybe it's 20% building, 80% operations. So there's definitely a big uh, gap between um, the operational component of, of multifamily and, and, and there are assisted living or, or dementia care or something along those lines. So it, what it means is, is that the operational team takes that much more importance. Um, you know, I've been in situations before where I bought a building that was empty and filled it in a couple of months. You know, built same building. I really did. I put maybe ten thousand dollars in capex into a million dollar project. It wasn't a capex problem; there was an operator problem. And so, you know, you can have a good operations. You can definitely, you know, there's a lot of people in this business that get reputations for turnaround artists. They just mm -hmm. go where the problem is and they go solve the problems. Uh, because it's, it's definitely a, it's a personality driven, build a good team, uh, cast a compelling vision, and, uh, and really understand what it is that your clients want and find a way to give it to them if you can. Nice. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of upside when you can buy an underperforming asset and improve it. And as far as your uh, specific work within residential assisted living, you work with dementia care. Um, now, so right now, uh, 32 of the 40 beds that I have are licensed here. So I do a lot of teaching and coaching about dementia care all over the country. Um, but um, I'm developing some mixed uh, properties that have both assisted living and dementia care. So when those projects are done, my sort of bed mix will be closer to 50 50. Um, I'll probably have because my next couple of projects are pretty big um, and uh, they're they're kind of like two thirds to three quarters assisted living to uh, dementia care. So that'll kind of even the numbers out or out of a couple hundred beds. I have about 100. And 100. Um, so I really like um, uh, what dementia care has to offer. But I think anytime you're in this space, if you can if you can be more things to more people, you know, so having sort of a base model assisted living, having kind of a luxury assisted living and then having kind of a dementia care product. It's good positioning in the marketplace because now you can capture, you know, budgets that range, you know, in a two thousand dollar range. You can capture people with, you know, different demographics, different needs. I mean, if you think about it, the really beautiful part about um, residential assisted living are these small, actually, 
uh, your ability to be able to change any one house to meet a niche. So, you know, if I'm well connected with a, a local synagogue, they say, man, we really love what you're doing. We need a kosher house. Can you do that? Well, they can if they can fill the number of beds necessary to make it worthwhile, then we can certainly do that. That's an example, right? So you could have it be along any number of things you can think about. Um, you know, maybe you do a house for people that have traumatic brain injuries and your average population is 30 or 40 years old. You know, right now you have people that, you know, are younger and get into a car accident and they go to a traditional rehab or traditional assisted living and they're looking around and the average age is 87. And they have a hard time relating. You know, if you get immersed, if you're 27, you get in a motorcycle wreck, probably not going to, you know, enjoy being in a house with 15, 87 year olds. Maybe you will. Maybe you'll probably <laughs> learn some stuff. But, you know, but, but it's good to have that choice. And so the cool thing about these smaller settings is that you can pivot very easily. Um, you can you can you can rise to the occasion to meet different demands that are, that are in the marketplace. Very difficult to do with a big building, because if you build a hundred bed facility, you know, if you're going to go after a niche, it's got to be a really big niche in, in a market because a hundred beds is totally different than filling eight or ten. Or Yeah. So I, I had never thought about the the angle of, say, somebody that gets a, a young person that gets in a motorcycle accident might need to go to a memory care facility. That's a. Interesting point. I mean, uh, from from the outside, I wouldn't have thought about that or the the um, kosher house. I mean, again, would have never would have never thought about that. Well, and it's it's beyond just that. I mean, you think about you know what you know Jimmy Buffett's doing with Margaritaville. I mean, he's built an entire you know, they're, they're building a Margaritaville facility, and ostensibly to be a bunch of people like listening to Jimmy Buffett all hanging out. You know, I mean, you could. You could do this. I mean, the other day I was I was telling the story to somebody and they said, you know what I've always wanted to do? I've always wanted to be a college alumni. So you go to a college town and you build an assisted living facility that's Penn State centric or, or, or University of Michigan centric or University of Texas centric. You know, and so you, you can and if you think about it, a lot of times we'll compare assisted living to sort of dormitory style living for seniors. So that's a great, you know, it's like we're back in college again. You know, everything's centered around games. You know, it's just the, the, the possibilities are endless. It really all boils down to it. first key is, you know, what's your what's your marketing situation? You know, who, who do you have the attention of? Who, who do you have influence over and who they have influence? And if you if you find that you have, you know, if there's one or two people in the entire city that, that control most of the traumatic brain injury cases and they're struggling to find a place to go, if you um, appeal to that person and, and, and can cast a unique selling proposition, then you can certainly do that. So the possibilities are endless. You can do it around, you know, you can do it around, uh, you know, country of origin. You know what? We're going to have a house that serves all Korean food and gets the newspaper in Korean. You know, the, the thing I like about this business and what's really powerful about it is that um, you can, if you, if you focus on service and you're creative enough, then you can basically always make yourself unique. Um, your uniqueness is limited only to your imagination and to what exists in the marketplace. You know, you know, and the college town idea was kind of amusing to me because if you think about uh, most major cities, they'll have a sports bar that's themed for a team not representing local city. So if you go to Philadelphia, there's going to be a Dallas Cowboys sports bar where Dallas Cowboy fans can go to a bar and enjoy the game and not listen to Eagles fans. No offense to you, Eagles fans. You are kind of annoying. I'm sure <laughs> in Philadelphia, and I'm sure you think we're annoying too, and that's fine. That's how sports work. But if you think about that, like think about like you could have a Texas A&M alumni in Austin, right? So the point is, is that you can really 
you can, anything you can carve out in the space you can do because there's people that need care. There's people that have needs. And if you can build a lifestyle around that care, you can do that. Dementia care, if you really think about it, is just a subset of that, right? So there's assisted living needs, that's general population, and there's people that have cognitive impairment. Now, dementia, there's 105 different types of dementia. So, or like 110, wow. there's a lot of them. We only know, we only really talk about like five or six because that's vast majority of cases. But you could have a, a, you could have a particular house that's really well specialized and treating people that have the symptoms of Lewy body dementia. So, and your caregivers know what it looks like and they know what to expect because people that have impulse control versus someone that has memory issues versus someone that's totally docile and, and sort of has more forgetfulness, um, those people are not going to necessarily be treated the same way. And we not right now, we have them all in kind of one community we, under the umbrella term memory care, dementia care. So it's interesting to think about that you can really, you can take this to a place where you can get really, really detailed if you want to. And that's really powerful in any business because, um, you know, you can appeal to whatever the market says you should appeal to. And you just have to understand it and you have to have connections in that marketplace. Um, it's, it's a very powerful place to be. And you could also pivot. I mean, just imagine you're running along, you're doing assisted living for 10 years. And let's say they start building a bunch of assisted living facilities around you. You start maybe having less less more and more competition and you start to struggle more and more to maintain your census. Nothing stops you from spending a little bit of money, redoing the house and a certain theme, and then using that as a unique selling proposition and going after the people that are Rolling Stones fans, for example. Rolling Stones fans. Yeah, those Rolling Stones fans really are getting up there in years. No, I'm just the Rolling Stones themselves are getting up there in in (laughs) years. Um, But yes, I mean, yeah, you can obviously see, I mean, I'm using a lot of a lot of real specific examples because the point I want to make is, is that, again, your, your unique selling. It's one of the few industries where your unique selling proposition is limited only to your yeah. imagination. There's just only yeah. so many other businesses that are like that. And it's a very cool thing about this business. You know, I mean, and, and you can find something you're into. I mean, you know, I know how many people that are older knit. I mean, I'm not into knitting, but I mean, if I hired a caregivers that were into knitting and if I hired, you know, managers that understood the knitting market, then we can have a house that turns out awesome things for grandkids every day. You know what I'm saying? Like you can do that. So that's the really cool thing about it is as long as you can understand that niche, you can, you can speak to it. So I think one of the, from the passive investing standpoint, one of the struggles that a lot of people have when they're looking for assisted living opportunities, residential assisted living opportunities is just getting in the first place because if you're out there trying to passively invest in real estate right now, we'll stick with the real estate example, even though residential assisted living by your uh, description is not necessarily real estate investing. If you want to invest in multifamily right now, you can go find a multifamily syndicator pretty easily. Whereas residential assisted living, from my perspective, it's a little bit harder to find those people. You guys are just quieter, I think is what it is. But where are the, say, where are the the good uh, residential assisted living syndicators right now there there's oh you you raising your hand on the, on the live stream uh but broadly i mean where can we find you guys where are you hanging out where can we meet you where do we meet the best ones All that. so i mean so one of the things that attracted me about assisted living initially and i'll answer your question in a second i haven't forgotten it one of the things that attracted me about assisted living in the first place was i thought this is my my one chance in life to not follow a trend but be ahead of it you know i'm always you know I'm, I'm always the guy. So, and a lot of times in real estate, I think I was accidentally dumb money. A lot of times I'd always 
let something happen for two or three years and I would come in at the tail end, you know? And I think a lot of people do that, right? So the sort of most investors invest at the end of a cycle, you know, and then they get beat down and it's the ones that have vision and courage that are investing in the depths of recessions and, and, and problems. And so right now, assisted living really, I mean, people talk about the baby boomers and the silver tsunami, all those things. Well, the oldest baby boomer is 74, right? 74, 75. The average person lives in assisted living is 87. So baby boomers are not really interacting with assisted living yet. They're not really a part of the story. And so you're really able to be ahead of a trend. And so one of the reasons why um, I decided to really focus hard on becoming an operations company is the very thing you mentioned. Um, I don't know of many people uh, personally that are both working on operations and also in the capital raising side. They're almost always completely firewalled or two separate companies or whatever the case may be. Um, we're kind of a unicorn in that capacity. Now, uh, not, we're not saying they aren't out there. It's just it's not a lot of people that are doing development and raising capital and doing operations. So the interesting thing is, is that um, we're in the process of building that out. So um, Gene and I are working together on a company called Family Legacy Homes. And the goal of that company will be to uh, create a fund um, that will um, essentially raise investor money and then we'll fund projects um, that we deem worthy. Um, and, and obviously Gene with his access to students and, you know, can spend a lot of time with these people, you know, gets an opportunity to vet people in a way that's hard to replicate, um, at least organically. Um, so that's one thing that's kind of happening. I mean, I, I think the other thing is, is that um, residents, so assisted living is not very old. And assisted living started in 1983. So it's a new business. Residential assisted living, strangely, probably predates assisted living, because if you think about it, People used to board at board and care homes back in the day, you know, around for a long time, you know. So if a, a woman, you know, got widowed and she found herself in this home, uh, you know, one of the ways she might make money is she would have strangers come in, either bed and breakfast style or if someone was sick, come, come live in her home and help take care of them. That, that's a model that's been around for, you know, I don't know how long, but for probably hundreds of years, maybe thousands. So assist, residential assisted living, as it's been created, is, is kind of an old business, but it's kind of coming around again. And I think the idea of making um, residential care homes into a business that you scale and you can run like a business in which you're able to do a great job taking care of your customers, but also create a big enough company where it can run in the background. And it's not owner centric. I think that's relatively new. And so I think that you're going to really see all that stuff start to change. One of the reasons why, you know, I've sort of gotten into um, my focus now is on planned care home communities. Some people call them a cluster development. Um, but I like planned care home communities because I can have all of the scaling of a big building with 80 or 90 beds and all the all the things that, that comes with that. But I can avoid all the negative outcomes of long hallways, cafeteria style dining, on home like feel. And I can I can create small, intimate atmospheres, but all on one campus. The, the advantages of that dual model is is, is multiple. And one of the number one things that that, are, that it really we're working to solve is in a campus design, um, I can have um, something that uh, is very difficult in residential living. It's very easy for me to get access to financing. So if you go to a bank for residential assisted living, sometimes they say, hey, is this a house? Is it a business? You know, do you have a track record and kind of go through that dance? When you're doing a campus, it definitely is going to trade exactly the same as a big building, would, right? Because it's a, you know, it's multiple communities on one campus. So now all of a sudden you get access to more traditional commercial financing. 
it, you know, um, now when your deal trades in the marketplace, it might trade at a seven or eight cap, whereas residential assisted living might trade at a 15. So you can kind of see how it might be advantageous from a disposition point of view um, to sort of develop enough scaling that you can solve those problems. And truthfully, when big money wants to get into this space and, you know, it, it's always pouring in, but let's be honest, the amount of money that's going to flow into senior housing in the next 10 to 20 years is going to be very big. And the bigger you are, if you have a thousand beds or 1500 beds or 2000 beds, um, you know, you're not necessarily having to look for them. They're looking for you because they say, hey, we know this company that owns controls 2000 beds. Let's give them a call. And so your exits become a lot different. Um, and those those big companies, those big you know insurance companies and hedge funds and, and private equity groups, they can afford to overpay because they have access to cheap capital. They have access to systems and processes and teams. And so they usually come in and they usually pay over market value for something because they make it up on operational efficiency. Um, and we saw that happen in single family homes. Um, you know, we saw everyone, you know, all these hedge funds say, we don't know how to manage single family homes. We don't know how to manage single family homes. And all of a sudden they said, you know what? We got to figure it out. We're just going to go buy 2,000 of them in a marketplace. And so we saw a lot of that. And, and uh, you know, uh, in the last four or five years, we saw that kind of consolidation where you had, you know, these hedge funds being the number one landlord in different cities and obviously being the number one landlord all over the country. So I think that's where assisted living's headed. I think there's going to be some consolidation, smaller levels, and I think you're going to see. Um, and, and what's interesting is every business that um, <clears throat> seems to have this baby boomer um, uh, relationship um, has been going through consolidation. Um, people think about assisted living. I have this conversation with a friend of mine where he doesn't think that care homes can scale. Think about mom and pop pharmacies. They've been getting bought up and consolidated. Mm -hmm. Think about mom and pop funeral homes bought up and consolidated. Very, there's very few standalone funeral homes anymore. They keep the family name, but they're owned by big, big corporations. Hmm. Um, so there's all these businesses that have been sort of mom and pop style operations, funeral homes. I think assisted living is sort of a natural evolution of that. And so my anticipation is you're going to see uh, money kind of pour into assisted living. So it's definitely a good time to get into that space because, you know, if you if you're if you're the gatekeeper and you hold inventory when the market decides that it's time to invest in something, that's a very powerful place to be. Yeah. And it's, you're not just holding this inventory and sitting on it. it. It's very much a cash flowing business. So you're making money just for the pleasure of holding the business in the first place. Yeah. I mean, the thing about assisted living that's kind of fascinating is there, there are some assisted living projects that I've seen that make sense unlevered. Wow. I mean, think about how many apartments would trade without leverage. I mean, it, none. it's very few. None. It's not none, but it's close. And I mean, there's not many people going, you know what? Let me go find something I can buy for $20 million and I can get, it, I can get you know, 6% cash on cash. It's just not, people aren't putting $20 million in like that. Um, all the returns are based on being levered. And I've seen care home deals that put a million dollars in and make 150 thousand a year. So you can maybe make the case that makes sense. Now, obviously, if you use leverage, then you can make those returns higher. So I'm all for leverage. I'm just saying the cash flow from assisted living facilities that are run properly, when you have scaling, when you have the things that you need, because again, there's some challenges. When you get those things, um, it sometimes can make sense to do those things unlevered. And that's not mm -hmm. true of very many other real estate subclasses. Um, they're very few. Uh, very, and so, yeah, absolutely. You're right. There's going to be cash flow opportunities, be all kinds of stuff. There's obviously all the tax benefits of owning real estate. 
all the things associated with that. But for me, I think um, the really interesting thing about the business, like I, I want to, I'm doing the business because I like helping people. I, I like the, you know, I like the challenge. I like helping improve people's situations where they've been in these situations where they're so terrible and they think, you know, you know, my life is over. Don't know what I'm going to do. Mom or dad keeps falling. I can't get my life back. And we can solve that for them. It's a very powerful place to be in. The interesting thing about this business from a financial perspective is what it looks like in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. We're not even scratching the surface of, of what this business is going to look like. And um, the, the, the retirement of the baby members and the baby members shifting into assisted living have already caused wholesale changes globally. And when they start interacting with assisted living and skilled nursing and memory care, man, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine, um, you know, generations so much bigger than the previous one. Yeah, it's going to it's going to change things a lot. I mean, one of my uncles is retiring in a month and he's 60 and he's a baby boomer. Maybe 61. I'm not exactly certain. So he'll start but, interacting uh, at some point with, he'll start interacting at some point with independent living or active adult if potentially is what we may. And, you know, those communities right now are, are sort of having to answer the question of like, how are baby boomers different? What do they want? You know, apparently they don't like the word senior. There's this whole like conversation about branding in our space. The business that I'm in, I'm, I'm in the business of helping people that, that basically have to do something. This is not necessarily a want transaction. This is a, I can't be safe at home. I can't meet my needs at home. I have cognitive impairment. My family can't take care of me. And so it's a little bit different because they're not making a decision uh, uh, out of a want. They're making a decision out of need and they're picking the place they think is going to best meet those needs. That's very different than someone that's 65 and says, I want to play golf and be with my friends. So I need to find a community that checks off all my boxes. Very different process. The buyer timeline is very different. You know, most independent living transactions, I think they like take like six months, to two years on average, you know, just because you have to court them and they got to make sure you like them. And, you know, do you have a buy-in? What's the, do you own the real estate? Do you rent the real estate? Those are all components that they're grappling with. My business, it's a very quick turnaround. People are usually making a decision within two weeks because, they're getting out of rehab and it's, it's, it, they've got they've got to find a place to stay. They've done something unsafe at home. Their family is totally worn out and exasperated. I mean, a lot of times what my business is about is taking care of the resident. That's, of course, number one. But really what we're doing is we're giving the family their life back because, you know, kids are happy to help take care of their parents. But they've also probably got kids of their own. They've got their own life. They need some help. And in the, in the case of cognitive impairment or dementia, they're probably not qualified uh, to interact with that person. They don't know how to get past all their, you know, when you, when you're taking care of someone that you know very well and has memory loss, you can personalize a lot of things that aren't personal. You know, it's not like if they love you enough, they're going to remember you. It's not how that works. <laughs> but people think that people think, Oh yeah, I, he knows it's me because he loves me. So, well, no, that's if his brain, her brain is, is dying or dead in the area of memory, then it doesn't matter how much they love you. They're not being agitated to you because they don't love you. They have a medical condition. And so it's sometimes best if you can kind of create arm's length, take care of someone that has massive cognitive impairment. It's just really hard not to bring your baggage to the table. Mm. Yeah. And I can see what you're saying about this is going to be, uh, what would you call it? A, a silver wave, or this is going to be a big uh, a silver tsunami. That's, that's even, even bigger. But it's a. It's also interesting to hear you point out they have uh, baby boomers have different preferences than the last generation, uh, and specifically they don't like being called. They don't like the word senior, and I'm sure it, it gets far more 
detailed as to how these businesses need to market themselves to their residents. And then also in many, many cases, I can imagine uh, folks with cognitive impairments, you know, like you said, you're giving the family their, their, their life back, essentially you're marketing to the family and you're, you're also serving the family in addition to serving the resident. So how does that serving the family aspect impact your business and how you market it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, I would say the vast majority of the decisions, probably somewhere around 90% are made for someone and not with them. Meaning that um, very few of the residents in our case actually tour the facility they're going to move into. Rather, it's their power of attorney, whether that be a family member or a guardian or, you know, sometimes people, you know, are 85 years old and they don't have a family. And so it's their next door neighbor or their old high school friend that's, that's helping them. I mean, you see all wow. kinds of unusual configurations and, you know, it's great that someone's willing to help them. But bottom line is the vast majority of our transactions are made and done for by the family. So one of the things I really train my team is um, we have to be very careful because we catch people um, in moments of grief. You know, that happens often. We catch people uh, in extreme moments of guilt. You know, I'm, I wasn't adequate enough to take care of my mom or dad or my spouse and not have to put them in a home. A lot of guilt with that. Um, we catch people um, in various states of denial. You know, you know, someone might have a mom or dad that's 105 and uh, they're, um, they're, they're approaching uh, the situation like they're going to live another 30 years. You know, I mean, it could. I mean, uh, but it's not necessarily likely. And so we see a lot of different states. And sometimes people see people that are just as rational and it's just clear eyed about a situation as you possibly can be. Um, but that's rare. I mean, most people that we run into, most of our clients are going through various stages of grief, guilt, and denial. And so a lot of what we have to try to do is just try to set realistic expectations, give them permission. You know, sometimes we, we spend a lot of time giving, you know, there's been tours where I spent maybe 15, 20 minutes talking with the resident. Another hour was talking about the wife who was upset. I mean, spouses are tough if you really think about it. I mean, you've lived with someone for 50, 60, 70, in some cases 80 years in terms of our clients. You've been with them. I mean, other people are like, hey, we've never been apart for more than three days for the last 80 years. Wow. Like, and that happens. And then you sort of have this, you know, and, and, and it's less true now, but in, you know, 1940s, 1950s, you had really clearly defined gender roles. So you've got, you know, a woman who's like, I've never, I don't know how to balance our checkbook. I don't even know how much money we have. And on the flip side, you have a guy, he's like never done anything for himself except go out and have a job. And, and he's never done anything domestically. He couldn't tell you how to turn on the oven, for example. And, so you have these people that have been in these relationships, so these very, very silo gender roles in a lot of cases, and they've been in these relationships for, for 80 years. And while I don't want to use the word codependency in terms of like a psychological term of baggage, they have very much become dependent on each other. Um, and so that's why you see these crazy situations where, you know, people have been together, you know, for 80 years and spouse one passes away and the other spouse follows in three days. Um, you see a lot of that stuff. And, and so spouses can be very tricky to deal with um, just because, again, they're bringing, the, they're bringing a lot of this stuff to the table. And so our job is to really understand it, not judge it in any stretch of the imagination, but just understand what they're going through and then kind of give them permission that it's okay. You know, it's okay that you have no training for taking care of someone with dementia and you feel like you've failed them. You haven't failed them. You've done the best. You've been doing this a lot of times for five, six, seven, 10, 12 years. 
you've done a great job, but it's okay to take a step back because there's some decent data to indicate that if you take care of somebody with dementia, um, usually die first. Wow. So, you know, so there's a lot of people that pass away giving so much of themselves, you know, because if you're constantly in a state of stress, if you're constantly, your body's constantly in fight or flight, you're always worried about something, can't go on vacation, can't work your job. You're just dedicated your entire life. I had a guy that uh, his, his, he basically he learned, he trained himself to be a light sleeper. So every time his wife got up in the middle of the night, he could wake up with her. So he would routinely not get more than an hour, an hour and a half of sleep in a row where some noise or some sound or some worry wasn't causing him to wake up. And, you know, I mean, you know, that guy still had guilt. I'm like, man, you've been very dedicated, man. I mean, it's okay to let somebody, you know, take the wheel for you from time to time. Yeah, you're not Superman. And, uh, and... Well, and it's very ingrained in this generation, right? It's a silent generation. You know, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of expectation for people to suffer in silence. Yeah. We're very, you know, some you know, first step to get help is you're going to ask yeah. for it. I mean, this is very much a business that, impacts everybody and you mentioned the the siloed gender roles um particularly of a you know particular generation i think you know the way i i relate to that and i encourage everybody there to think about it for yourselves my grandfather passed away earlier this year he was 92 he lived a great long life he was very active up until literally the month that he passed away uh, but in a way my grandmother's still alive in a way you know, the, the gender roles that they lived within, she took care of the cooking and the cleaning and he took care of taking care of the farm and make going out and making the money. And then he retired and everything. But if she had passed away first and she's still alive, thankfully she's doing well, but if she had passed away first, he would not have been able to take care of himself. in in many ways, he doesn't know how to cook anything. No. And, or he didn't, he, he didn't know how to do a lot of those things. So Somebody would have had to, one of my aunts and uncles would have uh, had to step up and, and help take care of him uh, in that situation. And I'm sure I've, we're, for folks listening, we're live streaming on Facebook and I've seen some of my, uh, some of my friends, you know, tune in and, and watch. And one of them in particular, uh, her mother-in-law was, had dementia and they were taking care of her up until, you know, she passed away and it's a terrible situation. This impacts everybody. And this is a, a way of investing and 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 truly and making money for sure but it's a way of having an impact in society and and having an impact on individuals lives so you know it's definitely it's got a, a lot of appeal uh for from my perspective but for a lot of people and uh you know i i know you're you've got some an initiative going on uh capital with a cause do you want to talk a little bit more about that and and specifically what you're doing to make an impact and I don't know, change the equation a little bit, but what does that mean to you and, and what are you doing with capital with a cause? Yeah. I mean, I mean, from, from my perspective, um, you know, at my core, uh, you know, I believe in, I believe that of all the economic systems and all the motivating factors in human society, that capitalism plays a, plays an important part in that. And that's, that's what I believe in my core. And I think sometimes it can get a little bit flawed, and sometimes it can um, sometimes it can go to an extreme. So, for example, you know, if you're an assisted living operator and you don't have good motivations, and you're like, we got to get we got to get the net operating income up. Well, you can cut expenses. Well, what can we cut? Well, let's let's serve lower quality food. 
well, let's cut back on the staff. So we really feel like we need, you know, three caregivers during the day, but let's cut to one and, you know, we'll make it work for a little while. Well, we got to have a mission that understands why you shouldn't do that. Now, you know, obviously capitalists would argue, hey, if you do that, then you'll go out of business. Well, that's probably true, but we see countless examples where people's motivations and incentives sometimes can be a bit short-sighted. You know, behavior theory tells us a lot about a person. You know, if a uh, great study or they did some research about this, this, this factory, and um, if, if something coming down a factory line is cancerous, but not hot to the touch, they struggle to get workers to wear gloves because it's not hot. And so they just don't think they need to wear them. On the other side, if something's not dangerous at all, but it burns your hand or is cold to the touch, it's very easy to get workers to wear gloves. Well, if something's hot or cold, you're probably going to burn the outside layer of your skin. But if you handle something for 20 years in the factory that's going to give you cancer, much worse result. So behavioral theory we know doesn't really wait the long term as well as it should have. It's a reason why people struggle to eat well and exercise and all those things. Short term pleasure is part of the deal. So sometimes as a CEO or as a, you know, someone running a company, you can sometimes get so focused on, I got to make this quarter, I got to make this quarter, I got to make this quarter. And when you're talking about taking care of people, um, you have to have a strong why. And so capital with a cause for me was really all about kind of marrying the idea that you don't have to make every squeeze, every dollar out of every situation and then take whatever's left over and invest in charity. You can combine the two and you can create situations where your investments or the things you're investing in create positive things for other people. So, um, and if you can marry those two causes, you have, you know, what's called impact investing. You can make an impact and impact investing can be things like sustainable agriculture. It could be, you know, in my case, investing in assisted living to where you can improve the outcomes and the quality of life for people that are, you know, especially memory care uh, folks who are very vulnerable members of society that can't be their own advocate. So if you can marry investing, making a return, but also creating a positive return inside society, that's what capital for with the cause is all about. And frankly, um, I'd heard of impact investing before, but I'd always kind of been too much of a capitalist in terms of just being focused on what's the money look like, what's the money look like. And as I got into this business, totally changed me because I realized you can't always be focused on the money. You have to consider your residents. You have to consider your staff, sometimes even at the expense of money. And so um, I had a couple of investors when I was initially raising capital for the first time, and they would tell me like, hey, you know, I have other deals that I can invest in, but I'm investing in your deal because I think it's going to be beneficial for these people. And I can tell you really care about them. And I had one guy, he said to me, he said, listen, I get, I one time lost $100,000 drilling for oil. I did not feel good about losing that money. He said, if I give you this $100,000 and I lose the money, I hope you don't lose it. But if you do, I'll at least feel like I was trying to help some people in the process. So I started to realize that not wasn't anything I came up with. My investors were just telling me, hey, we do care about your mission. We do care about what we're trying to do. And so it made me realize that, that, that I want to create a forum and I want to create a place. And so we're kind of working on building this group where people that have deals that have a social component to them can invest with investors who are can not who, who are not going to just invest in deal B because the IRR is 2% higher, right? They may say, hey, listen, deal A might have a 2% lower internal rate of return, but I think you're going to positively impact the community. I think you're going to positively impact that are in difficult situations. And so for that reason, I'm going to invest because my spirit gets lifted by doing those things. The community gets made better off or, you know, I know what I went through when my grandfather had dementia. I know what went through when my spouse mm -hmm. had 
assisted living needs and I saw the struggles and I saw the isolation and the depression and I saw what happened, how deadly falls can be. So if you can do something that can help prevent that in another family and save them from that pain, then your investment makes more sense to me than a couple points. And so that's really where that's kind of been born from is the idea that, um, you know, it's not all about how much money you make. Um, it's, it's a combination of making money and, and doing good for society, kind of do good and do well at the same time. I like that. I, I like that a lot. I mean, this is a, an important cause and you know, you, um, you said it without saying the specific term, but the one that comes to mind to me is, uh, you know, senior abuse. Um, it's out there. It's real. People are doing it and, um, it's tragic. So well, I, I don't know. I don't know what else to say other than that. So certainly I applaud you for, for doing what you're doing. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. Appreciate I mean, that. You know, and I, I, what I always say about that is, is most of the time, pe- most of the time people get into these situations should neglect listen it can ha- it doesn't matter how good of a facility you have it can happen period um and and i try not to wag my finger um than anybody that you know some other facility has where, where i do think it's really important uh is that where people get into trouble and where i do wag my finger at them is that when something becomes clear they don't take action as a company or you know famously there's an old saying it's not the, it's not the act that gets you it's the cover-up you know it's people that have bad things happen they don't own it um, you know, and, and so, you know, our company is based on the premise that we're going to make mistakes. You're taking care of someone 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Just go ahead and, and understand you're make mistakes. And I got a couple of people on my staff who are dyed in the wool perfectionists. And uh, I'm like, listen, guys, it, you have to understand if we put out a bad meal, if we do a poor job cooking a meal and the residents don't don't like it or the family says, hey, they didn't like it. It wasn't a very tasty meal. You. you apologize, fix it to the best of your ability and work on systems and process to improve it because there are, you know, places all over the country that are that are charging more money and serving rice and beans as the only meal all day, every day. And the caregivers are uninterested in all those things. So it's to me, it's less about, you know, things like senior abuse and, and more like apathy. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that get in this business and the, their residents are, are numbers on a spreadsheet not people. And um, I try to stay as connected to that part as possible so that I can see the families for who they are. I can, I can understand their stories for what they are. You know, I mean, you, I mean just imagine you know, people bring, you know, their life story with them. Um, one of the most interesting things that ever had happened, um, and it, it was a paradigm shifting thing for me, was I had this, this person whose family had, uh, I forget which country, but their family had survived sort of a communist famine. And so she just assumed anytime someone ate like a smallish meal, it like set her off because it would take her down this, oh, he's gonna starve to death. And we, we serve relatively small meals in, in assisted living. Meals are good, but they're small. Most seniors, you know, like, you know, you or I may eat a 10 ounce steak. That, that's gonna, a senior, most seniors need two, three ounces, four ounces of a steak. Is what they're actually gonna eat. And so for her, she had convinced herself that these small meals. And so, you know, we were like, man, what is she talking about? And then when I sat down and I heard her story, it all made sense because, I mean, just imagine you see your family members go through or you hear these stories going through your family about the famine and starvation. And then your husband moves into an assisted living facility that's, that, that's serving a standard style. And then you're like, oh, my God, they're serving 
they're serving prison, uh, prison, prison sized food here. And we're like, no, okay. So what you're saying really is you want him to have bigger portions. So easy to fix, but we didn't need to understand her story because we needed the context behind how she was feeling. And so we try to take the time to figure that out and, and realize that, you know, great book that I, I read about psychology, a friend of mine wrote it, Dr. Psychology. It basically just as of the theory that everybody's doing the best they can with the tools and, and that they have. So there's very few people in the world that are just evil. They're not. They're making the decisions that they think make sense in the context of what they think is going on. And if you can understand that, then you can kind of appreciate people for who they are and just understand that, like, listen, if I'd gone through the experiences you had, I might have a different outlook on life as well. And so that's a you need that for two reasons. And one, you have to have that when you deal with people with dementia and memory loss and all those things, because, you know, they're you've got to get in their world. They're never going to come to yours. You have to be able to understand what they're actually thinking. You know, if you've got a guy that. Every day packs a suitcase to leave. An untrained person says, where are you going? You're not going anywhere. You live here. Go put your stuff away. Well, now you've got a cognitively aware adult arguing with a person that has brain disease. Which one's crazy? You tell me. Now, a trained person says, hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to school. Awesome. What day are you going to school? I'm going today. What day do you think it is? It's Tuesday. Well, you're going to school tomorrow. So I have an idea. Since you're going to school tomorrow, it doesn't make sense to leave your luggage out by the front door because someone could trip over it. Take it back to your room, and I'll remind you tomorrow when the bus comes. Treat that process as needed. So you can understand why accepting people for who they are is a very important part of assisted living and dementia care because you've got to get in their world. They're never going to come to yours. And, and that's not true of families, but it can be. You know, if you bring 80 years of, of personal story and baggage with you, you know, emotional trauma and fears and, and pain and pleasure. There's very little I'm going to be able to do to fix that in a month or two. So, you know, I've got to kind of understand where you're coming from, figure out what your goals and expectations are, and then do the best I can to build my company and my service around those needs for you. And if I can't, I'll tell you, then go try to find the company that can. Wow. Quite the example uh, that, that you gave of uh, the gentleman that you pack on his bag and leaving it by the door and you know, how a, a trained person handles it. So we had a question here on the live stream that I want to make sure to get to. It's very different from what we've been talking about, but uh, it's, along, it's right along your lines of experience. So uh, let's get into it. So the question is from uh, someone who's sourcing deals. How can we find local operators if we have a perfect house to sell or rent to them for an assisted living operation? Hmm. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, you know, I don't think it's as... I don't think it's as easy. Um, you know, most cities do have, you know, uh, groups of people that are in assisted living space and there are plenty of people that rent their homes. You know, I've always kind of been of the opinion, I'd like to be on both sides, I want to be the real estate owner operator. Um, and the biggest challenge, so I don't know that I have a great answer for that question um, specifically. Um, I think that's just networking. Um, my suspicion is, is that the person you're probably going to find is going to be someone that doesn't come from a real estate background, but rather comes from a, I'm a social worker, I'm a nurse, or I've been an administrator and I've wanted to own my own business for a long time. And so I'm gonna do something that's not as capital intensive. Leasing obviously is less capital intensive. One thing I will give them a piece of advice for is just be prepared. Um, most of the work is in the operations. So be prepared that whatever structure you enter in with them, you know, just like if you hire a third party management company, say multifamily versus assisted living, in a big assisted living, the operator gets a much bigger piece of the pie. Um, they're often required to personally guarantee debt. 
as the operator, you know, uh, most most assisted living deals, the operator may get points on the deal because they're doing all the hard work and they're dealing with all the challenges of the business. So it's a bit different. Um, so obviously seek to under, you know, the best advice I can give you is if you do find somebody, ask good questions about what they want, what their goals are, and then try to do something, try to try to create a lease agreement or terms that create win-wins um, so that you can understand what they want. I think too many people uh, come from a background of, okay, well, this is the way single family works, this is the way multifamily works. And if you do it that way, you're very likely to make a deal that either doesn't pass a smell test for a good operator, or the only person that would say yes to it is an operator that doesn't know any better, and you might be inadvertently taking advantage of them, or you might be basically self-selecting that you only get bad operators because you know a good operator is worth their weight in gold and uh, can 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 get a deal anywhere um, if they're doing if someone can fill an operator in assisted living facility or memory care facility they can they can do anything that they want within reason because they're very hard to find um, so but yeah look for some look there might be like for example Texas has Texas Organization of Residential Care Homes, TORCH, and it's a state organization that has local chapters. If you can find if there's some sort of assisted living association or residential assisted living association, uh, yeah, and they have meetings you can join, then you can you know, basically say, you know, I have a house that I think would be perfect and I'd love to hire an operator. So it's really going to be come back to just good old-fashioned networking and figuring out who the right people are to know. I don't know that there's a, another good way to do it. Mm. Oh, networking is a uh, great skill. Yeah, okay, this is one thing. Most states do tell you where the licensed facilities are. So what you could do is you could go get a list of all the licensed facilities. And most states require you to list who owns the real estate, who the operator are, and you can look for pretty obvious differences in companies. That could be a clue. Or you could, and then what you're doing is you're calling them to say, hey, I'm looking for an operator to take over this project. Would you be interested in leasing or coming to be third-party management? You could call all the existing operators in a certain area and ask them. So I get calls often from, hey, you know, I got this house to sell or I don't know. I found you because I went to the list on Texas and call, I'm just calling. So it's it's a little bit more targeted cold call, if you were. So you're not calling the phone book. You're just calling people that have a decent reason to, to be in this. Nice. Okay. I like that. I like that. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. What is the best investment in real estate that you've ever made? Um, definitely the first care home that I built. Um, you know, it was a, it's an awesome, it was an awesome deal. And not only did I learn a whole lot, but it's really, really outstanding returns. And that's been an awesome project. Hmm. Okay. Second question. What is the worst investment that you ever made? This one's also pretty obvious for me. Um, I, we, my partner and I in Louisiana bought 30 uh, low income houses. Man, uh, class C and D or E maybe in some cases, uh, class C, <laughs> e, e, single family investing. Um, and we, uh, is difficult business. We, we worked real, real hard uh, to break even most months in that business. So definitely, uh, definitely our low income Louisiana portfolio was definitely the worst investment we ever made. Mm, yeah. I mean, I can see in that business, you have low rents, but a lot of your, Cost for equipment and things. I mean, they're going to be fixed. A, an AC unit costs what an AC unit costs, no matter where you are. So you need to have enough gross rents to have enough rent left over after you pay your debt to pay for your, I don't know, new AC unit to keep going with my example or any of that equipment, stuff like that. I mean, I can deal with that. But I mean, the stuff that always bothered me was just, you know, I think sometimes too, people are kind of on the margins 
society financially, you'll see situations where you'll have a four bedroom house with, with one bathroom or something, you know, cause that's just how you, you know, it's not a great way to do it. And, and, uh, you don't have eight adults in the house and you're just going to, whether you, whether you have no, no bad intents at all, you're just going to destroy the house. It's just not, you know, eight, eight adults sharing the space of that size using one restroom, just going to predictably cause a lot of un, unnatural wear and tear to the property. So, um, it was definitely eye opening. Learned a lot from that. Um, you know, definitely learned a lot about, um, about, about my investment philosophy when it came. Good to know. Last question, my favorite one. What is the most important lesson you've learned in investing? So that's interesting. I think for me, um, it's really to invest in what you know in. Um, so I think um, anytime you can sit down or talk to clients that you more intuitively understand because that's your background or that's your, you know, that's your income level or you're talking to clients where you're speaking the same vernacular, you know, it's always helpful, you know? So if you're an educated person, if you can somehow create situations where the person on the other side of the desk would use an educated person, you've just got a real good way with country people and probably interacting with people from the country is gonna work out really well for you. And so um, I think for me, it's it's invest in things that you know and invest in things that you can intuitively understand because you've spent time with them. You know, if you're, if you're scared of, you're scared of water, probably don't invest in island vacation homes because you don't really understand the lifestyle. Right? <laughs> so I just recommend people to invest in things they understand. Um, so, and that's, that's been helpful for me is, is when I can invest in things where I can really understand the clientele because I've gone through the same thing or because they remind me of my family or, or whatever that can, that can allow me to, to be more effective with my clients. And uh, as opposed to, um, not really understanding the conditions that someone's going through on the other side of the table. So I appreciate everything today on uh, residential assisted living, particularly the, you know, the memory care. It's definitely compelling, definitely compelling. And I think you have a great angle on it or a great way of, of looking at the business. So, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing that and, and being out there. If folks want to learn more, if they're interested in passively investing, where can they get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and one of the things, you know, if your family, if you're looking for something for your family, you know, and you're in a different state or city, you know, feel free to reach out to me. I'll try to connect you to resources, just, you know, investing related. You know, if you just need to talk about assisted living here, you know, feel, feel free to give me an email. But the best way to find me is uh, my email is L-O-E, my first name, Lo, And then my website is at the, T-H-E, Sage, S-A-G-E, O-A-K.com. Or you can go to the sageoak.com. There's an info tab. You can click that and that'll come right to me. And people can get information about either investing in or how to start a residential assisted living. I connect you to some resources there. Or if you just, you know, hey, I'm trying to find a place for my mom in Kansas City, you know, give me a call. And if I got somebody on my network, I'll, I'll refer you. Very cool. Well, once again, I appreciate you uh, taking some time to talk to us and being out there and being a force for good in the world. Hey, man, really appreciate having me on the show. It was a lot of fun. Hey, it was my pleasure. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you are enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a big help. It helps other people learn about the show. If you know someone that could use some passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into our little tribe of investors. Once again, thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you, sir.